hi, I know quite a few of you, um, but some of you I've probably never met um, and you might have just found this randomly on Twitter. I don't know. Um, so I want to introduce myself and just say good evening and why I'm going to be talking to you. Um, it's very late evening for me, so wherever you are in the world, good day. Um, but I'm over in the UK in Wales, so it's about 11 p.m. Um, so I'm Maggie Park. Um, I've got my PhD in film and digital media from Bangor University in Wales. I teach with Signum University. Um, I also teach with Kappa in London, um, and I do some freelance work on script editing and fan management. Uh, my work was on uh, film adaptation and fan management. So I looked at insanely popular texts and how they got from book to screen and how those filmmakers manage the fan bases in the adaptation process. Um, threw some stuff down there, some of the people that I've worked with and things that I've done, just so you know, I got some street cred. <laughs> but the shiny stuff is that uh, I worked on the sets of Twilight and Captain America, so all of my examples will be from popular literature. Um, for this presentation, mostly Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and Twilight. Um, Twilight, I'll give my disclaimer for shortly. Um, but a couple things I want to do first. So I always start with my PSA. This is my public service announcement because I'm sure all of you feel very strongly about this. You have gone to see a film based on a beloved book or watched a television adaptation of one of your favorite stories and you hated it and you got irate and you were so angry the decisions made. Um, so I'm just going to give you a few things to think about while I go through this conversation. I'm not saying that you'll change your ways. Um, I definitely haven't completely, but I do try to keep a more open mind when I go into an adaptation, um, when I watch it, and just view it as a different media altogether. Uh, it's one person's interpretation of a story. So just a few things to think about as we're going through this. A book, a solitary author, independent creativity. You know, there's nothing really stopping them from doing whatever they want in the text. Yes, they might have an editor, they might have some beta readers that are gonna weigh in, but for the most part, it's exactly what they wanna do. So if they wanna have a fleet of flying school buses going into space, they can. On film, that might be very expensive if you're doing a low budget film. Um, there's a lot of different considerations with a film adaptation, time, money, talent, facilities, resources, all these things um, can change how a film is made practically, but also the artistry behind it can be really affected um, by all the voices in the room. So it's just having a deep breath and saying you're looking at one person's interpretation of this story. Um, also, there's a lot of different ways to deal with an adaptation. So I've got two examples here from Harry Potter that I just want to throw out to the gang. Um, one of the things is we only need a few seconds of film to encompass pages and pages of text. So you might be familiar with this shot. This is from the sixth Harry Potter film. Um, this is Lavender Brown. She dated Ron Weasley for a little while, and they were your traditional teenage couple, just hot and heavy, snogging in the corridors. Um, and then it got real cliche, real overbearing. Uh, she called him Juan Juan and gave him cheesy gifts and things like that, to the point that you're like, ah, <laughs> just too much. Um, so this scene, she's on the train and goes up to their train compartment and breathes on the window and draws this heart and writes R plus L and goes, I miss you. And you're just dying inside because it's so over the top cheese. That scene is about six seconds long. So in the chat, I want you to guess how many pages of text do you think that six seconds covers? Just take a shot in the dark. 
Ooh, we've got a wide range here. One person is pretty good. Two people are pretty good. Interesting, we've got two sides of the spectrum here. Okay, we've got a couple people guessing three, four, two, and then we have a few saying 20, 37, 38. Um, and it's those later ones that are much closer. I'm sorry, let's go back. Oh, yeah. Hang on, folks. Okay, so let's go back here. There we go. So six seconds of screen. It's about 23 pages of text. Crazy, I know. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I'm totally right. Um, but when you start thinking about it, you're like, but it's such a quick scene, how can that cover so much? It's because we only need a few seconds of film to encompass the tone and the action of what those pages of text need to do in a film. So what we need is tone and action to move the story forward. Yes, I miss those 23 pages of them snogging in corridors and becoming a ridiculous couple, but we don't have that time necessarily on screen. So in this six seconds, we have this heart, we have this breathing, we have this, I miss you. And that gets across the tone, which is, and the action split up. So we get that in that short version. Similarly, we get scenes like this. Oops, I did it again. I gotta stop bumping things. <laughs> so we get scenes like this where one image visually can just say a lot. So this is all about the different media, um, how you need pages and pages and pages to tell you something, but sometimes just one solitary picture, one shot can do that. So this is from the last Harry Potter. This is after uh, Ron has a big fight with Harry and says, you don't know what you're doing, you know, I'm out of here, this stinks, and he leaves them. Um, then Harry and Hermione uh, disappear and they end up here. Um, and this, sec this scene, says a lot. So first of all, if you're familiar with the rule of thirds, this is kind of interesting in photography. So we've, it just is a rule that in photography that means our brains are happy when we can divide a shot into a tic-tac-toe board, basically, thirds vertically and thirds horizontally. So we can do that with this. Harry makes a vertical line, the tent makes a vertical line, the horizon makes a horizontal line, and then our brain kind of fills in that last horizontal line on the bottom. So visually, this is just a satisfying, engaging image. And then you start looking at what's in the image. He's wearing really dark clothes. He's on an incredibly unforgiving landscape. Like, dude's definitely gonna break an ankle if he steps wrong. His back is turned away from the only source of light in that image. And that source of light is in the top right corner. So there's this idea in film and imagery that your eye moves from left to right in a traveling kind of idea. So if you ever watch a road movie or something, the car almost always moves from the left side of the frame to the right. So here, having the light source in the top right side, that's kind of willing us to move Harry that way. You want him to go towards that corner, but his back is turned towards it. So you have this kind of dark foreboding feeling. Um, the other interesting thing with this shot is the time. Um, if you want to be an annoying person the next time you go to watch a film, just I try not to do it, but you can't help it sometimes is count how many seconds each shot is. The average shot is like three to five seconds. So it'll be like Harry over here talking to Ron. Ron finishes talking back to Harry. So you start counting. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, and it bounces back and forth. So when they hold longer than five or six seconds, it's because they want you to notice something. 
it's because they want you to feel something or just take note of something important in that scene. Often it's an establishing, an establishing shot, so it'll be like a wide shot of a location so you know where we are, you've got time to kind of arrive into that location. With this one, no dialogue, really beautiful performance and music, lovely cinematography, and it's eight to 10 seconds long. So it just holds. They want you to sit with that emotion. How many pages do you think this takes up from the text? My guess is. Starting to get it. Again, we've got a good range here. 5, 40, 19, 30. Multiple chapters. Yeah, Rachel, I think you're a little bit closer to the mark. I think it's about 60 or 70 pages. Um, and again, this is you know subject to your own interpretation. But basically, this image is frustration and moving forward. We need him to get frustrated. In the book, they operate so many times to these different places and just get more and more frustrated not knowing what to do next. We don't really have time in a film to do it that much, although they do do it a lot, and I still argue they didn't need two films. They definitely could have shoved that together into one. Um, but what we need is that feeling of frustration and that movement towards hope. And for this, that movement towards hope is Hermione in the tent in a source of light. So that's what happens. He goes into the tent, they have that really awkward dance scene, and then they move forward. So yeah, this eight seconds is probably 60, 70 pages of text. So that's just kind of one PSA way for me to say, take a breath when you go to an adaptation. I definitely miss stuff from the text. But for films, they have to choose a lens to tell the story, a singular through line. And with Harry Potter, it's always Harry. It's his story. That doesn't mean there won't be scenes with other people in it. You'll definitely have periphery storylines going on, but they all have to affect Harry's storyline. Um, and when I was working on uh, Captain America, I was talking to the producer there and I was like, well, how did you do that? You know, something like Avengers, you know, how would you pull that together and, and have that going forward? Um, and they said, watch it again. Uh, this is well after Captain America. They said, watch it again um, and watch it with Captain America in mind. He is the through line. And I did, and you kind of can see it, where it's like, not all about him, but he's the one constantly moving the story forward. So whatever has to happen in terms of plot arc happens usually through him as a conduit. So it's just making those tough decisions to move the story forward in the short time that we have, using the facilities that we have at our disposal, image, music, performance, um, drawing a heart on glass. <laughs> So those are just my quick examples about adaptation, how these things are different. We're looking at two completely different mediums um, and how they can tell a similar story, but in very different ways. So taking that into some of the other work, I'm gonna walk you through a little bit about fan management in these adaptation processes. Um, so when you're talking about fan management, obviously you have to start with the audience. The audience is your fans. Um, so I'm going to walk you through a little bit about, you know, data, how we get our information, um, finding out who the communities are within your audience group, uh, getting to know what they know, um, not necessarily just the trivia, but how things work and hierarchies of that fandom, where and how they communicate, where they meet up in real life if they do, um, all of those things. Uh, knowledge definitely about speak their speak as well. You have to fit in. You got to know what the fan speak is. If somebody says, you know, you look like a muggle when you're playing Quidditch and you don't know what that means, 
they're going to be able to suss you out real quick about where you fall in the hierarchy of that fandom. Oh, you don't know what that means? Mm. You know, if somebody started spouting baseball stats at me, I'd, <laughs> but if somebody said something within my realm of fandom, I'd clock it and be like, oh, okay, you know, I get you. So that's really important um, when looking at the audience as well and when working with them as a film adaptation artist. Um, influence, knowing who is influential in that sphere, again, knowing the hierarchy, who runs the fan sites, who's listened to the influencers, um, and then involving some of those people in strategic places. So that's what we're gonna walk through. So here's my, here's my disclaimer for Twilight. I don't care if you like Twilight or not, like Twilight or not. It shouldn't matter if I like Twilight or not. Um, the key part and the thing I really like about having Twilight as my case study for everything is that the whole world knows about it. You know, I've, I've given a similar lecture to this in Latin America, South America, North America, all over the UK, um, and everybody knows it. So I never have to like give the background detail and things like that. You know, it's a teenage love story about a vampire and a mortal girl. Pretty much all you need to core summary about it but um the key thing with twilight is i worked on the first film and i submitted my phd as breaking down part two came out so i followed the entire arc of this phenomenon basically um so it was a fascinating thing to dig into and i just had a ton of access so in terms of a case study for a phd mm, really nice um but it was also a lot of fun and it fit into the pop culture uh YA literature that i was really looking for so in terms of an example it's fantastic um, because it did a lot of stuff that people hadn't done before and a lot of things that have been copied since um so twilight definitely the impetus for i, I think the impetus for a lot of things that have followed after um, i think people were taking notes about how they did this uh, and are copying it into industry practices now so i'm going to use twilight as my case study for a lot of this stuff so we're looking first at the audience um, this is just a simple diagram to get an idea of who your audience might be when you're looking at something like this. We've got the core, niche, secondary, and tertiary. Your core audience is the obvious target. Teen girls. They love Twilight. <laughs> you know, when you think of Twilight fans, you just picture the screaming girls. Niche audience. That would be some sort of a specialized entry, like people who are big fans of vampire literature. So maybe they started with Bram Stoker and now this thing came out and they're like, oh, it's not my bag, but you know, I love vampires, so I gotta go see it at least once. Secondary audience is attached to the core. So those are the people that the core would just drag in, <laughs> usually moms and boyfriends um, for, for Twilight. However, moms became their own group as well. There was a really, there is a very large and active fan site called Twilight Moms. Um, and it was the moms that would show up to set more often than anybody else, to, I guess, because they had their own modes of transport. But um, so secondary is attached to that core audience. Um, the boyfriends one was also interesting because the first trailer that came out for Twilight just focused on the major fight at the end of the film. So it was just this like graphic action battle. They knew they had the core audience. So they were going after the secondary audience, trying to get the guys in. And the producer said as much to me. I was like, mm, clever. Um, and then there's the tertiary. Uh, so that's some sort of a peripheral attachment. Um, that could be a load of different things, but for this, one of the clearest examples is Mormons. Um, not that it was like pushed within the church to go see this, but Stephanie Meyer, the author, was a Mormon, um, and it was clean, acceptable, you know, enjoyable entertainment. Um, so there was a big movement within the Mormon community to go to these um, and, and support them. Um, so there's a big 
population within the fan hierarchies running the fan sites as well as within the fandom at, at large that are Mormon. So just a little breakdown of, of how you can work with your audience. And then what do you do with them when the film starts shooting? So directly involving your author is a big deal. Um, they are the creators of that world. They're the gods of that universe. So um, if Stephanie Meyer says, oh, I don't know, I don't like how he looks, that would then color the entire fan reaction potentially, because if she didn't like it, then I'm not going to like it. Obviously, this doesn't always happen, but Stephanie Meyer was very involved in her fandom, um, posted on her blog frequently, shared a lot of details uh, with her fan base, visited set, all those kind of things. This is her on set. Um, and that was really publicized. So she had a stake in the fandom, in the adaptation, and people knew that and respected her opinion about what was happening. So uh, if something was going wrong, you don't you want to avoid that if you possibly can. So if we look at like J.K. Rowling, Stephanie Meyer, Tolkien, Susan Collins, Veronica Roth, they were all directly involved in their adaptations. Yes, I know Tolkien has passed away, so he clearly was not involved in Lord of the, the, Lord of the Rings. Um, but we do have the Tolkien estate. Um, Tolkien estate will approve anything using Tolkien characters in another way. So um, some of my research was on Lord of the Rings Online, Lotro. Um, and for that, anytime they created something within the world, it had to be sent off to the Tolkien estate, Tolkien Enterprises, to sign off on it. So every day they got information back saying, yes, we approve this horse. Yes, we approve this, you know, of random bits. Um, and I, I did ask if there was anything that they rejected. Um, and the game designer I was with said the only thing that he remembered was that they had chocolate for sale in the, the online shop. And the scholars were like, no, there was no chocolate in Middle Earth. <laughs> so they had to get rid of that. Um, so there was some sort of a quality control over that author authorial intent um, in the textual adaptation. Um, Suzanne Collins, Stephanie Meyer, Rowling, they were all executive producers by the end of their adaptation. So they had a financial and a creative stake in the adaptation process. But then you compare that to Philip Pullman, Susan Cooper, Christopher Paolini, which we'll look at in a second. Um, that's His Dark Materials, The Darkest Rising, and the Aragon series. Um, barely consulted, fans really upset by the changes that they heard coming out of it. Not a lot of attention given to the fan backlash and it didn't suit them well in the end. Um, a big part of this is doing your research. So what is it from the text that people really latch on to? What are their key bits to focus in on? Um, ways that you can do this, definitely look at fan art. Um, take a look down the rabbit hole of YouTube and Reddit. Um, take a look on Etsy and see which quotes appear on tote bags and things like that. Um, take a look at what lines people have tattooed on their bodies. Um, and this was a big deal for Twilight, having Stephanie Meyer involved in the adaptation. So she visited set, I think, eight times. Um, she was also involved in the script editing process. So the writer would write, send it to the studio, send it to the director, send it to Stephanie Meyer. She didn't change much, but she would write notes in the margin, um, just kind of things to be aware of, um, to the point that she became known as the fans champion, because she was really pointing out things that fans were gonna get mad at. Like, these are the little details you have to get right. And one of them was this line. And so the lion fell in love with the lamb. Originally, that was not in the film. And she said, well, people have this tattooed on their bodies. So you have to do that. Um, there are also details like Bella's eyes are brown, um, so Kristen Stewart had to wear brown contacts because that's a big deal later on about how the eyes of their, their child match. Um, 
the first date they went on, they actually had mushroom ravioli in the movie and like that detail was picked up by diehard fans. Uh, and there's a, a fairly famous one that in the, one of the scripts, uh, they went into Edward's bedroom and sat down on his bed. And Stephanie Meyer goes, no, vampires don't sleep. He had a black leather sofa. None of these things matter. It's not going to change the course of the story, but it is the kind of thing that if you are a diehard fan, especially if you are a reactive teenage girl fan and you have access to social media and this wide range of people around you and you see something like a bed when it's supposed to be black leather sofa, like, no, you got it wrong, I'm done, <laughs> right? And toys out of the pram, you're done. Um, so by not doing that, by incorporating the author, by flagging up those things that are important to fans, they're just kind of creating this baseline of trust. And as a fan, if you're watching that, you're like, all right, you got that. All right, good. Well done. Marvel is excellent at this. You know, the Easter eggs they plant to just keep fans engaged and, and noticing things and picking out the detail. Uh, it, it just creates this baseline of trust. So yeah, incorporating your fans, big deal. So knowing who these fans are as well is a big deal. Um, so all three of these pictures I actually took myself. The top one was from TwyCon, which is Twilight Fan Convention in 2009. The middle one was from the Breaking Dawn book release in New York City. First of all, check out all the digital cameras because this was back in the day. Um, and this was standing on top of the counter um, at 11.58 p.m. right before they started handing out the books. And then the bottom one is from the set, that's Kristen Stewart, talking to some of the owners and moderators of the Twilight Lexicon, um, one of the largest Twilight fan sites out there. Um, and some of the some of the Lexicon, one of the Lexicon girls is in the top picture as well, and that's with werewolves. Um, so the point of these is just to show the fan integration into the actual adaptation. So it's visiting set, it's creating events, and it's participating in that fervor and that enjoyment. The set visit was a big deal um, and just a really clever way to get that engagement uh, within the fan community. So they invited the owners of uh, the largest fan site out there for Twilight to set um, completely at the cost of the fans. They paid for their flights, their rental cars, their hotels. They didn't have access to craft services for lunch or anything like that. Um, and they came on an absolutely horrid day, pouring sideways. It was just grim. Um, and they were in, you know, very nice coats, and very nice shoes, because it was their set day. And everybody else was in raincoats and boots and everything. Um, but that day, they were led around by the publicist, Peter Silverman, and he walked them around and introduced them to the entire cast and crew, one at a time. They were probably there about six hours total. And in that six hours, they got enough content to sustain the fandom for about six months. Every Tuesday and every Friday, they would release something from that set visit, a picture, a story, um, a memory, you know, whatever it was. And that would sustain the fandom. They knew that Twilight Tuesday and Fansite Friday, they had new content coming to them. And it didn't cost the uh, filmmakers anything to do that. Um, and the fans got a maximum return from it, plus that personal buy-in of, I know that fan, she runs my website, I trust her, and she's saying it's cool and it's great and really fun. So you get that kind of circle of trust going in there. TwyCon was also completely fan run. Um, that was a massive conference, about 2,400 people at the event, and it was completely run by the fan site owners. They hired the actors to come in. They did send a studio rep from Summit Entertainment just to kind of observe and make sure nothing major happened. Um, 
but when something major did happen, so I can share that story about fan management. <laughs> um, but it was more for fans by fans. Um, the major thing that happened was it was during ToyCon that they announced they were changing one of the actors um, from the second to third film, I think. It was Rochelle Lefebvre, who was Victoria, the redheaded uh, vampire. And they recast that to Bryce Dallas Howard for uh, Eclipse, the third film. And that was announced during ToyCon. It was like DEFCON 1. <laughs> it was as if the world was ending. Rochelle Lefebvre got online and was like, I can't believe you're doing this to me. They've, you know, crushed my dreams. I love my fans. I can't believe you're replacing me. And all this, you know, horrible emotion coming out of it. So the fans rallied behind her. How dare you? We love her. She has to be. Let's start a petition. Let's start boycotting. This movement started. Where were we? I was in a green room with all of the fan site owners of the largest Twilight fan sites about to go on and run a panel about the adaptation. So again, it was like DEFCON 1. They're all like on their phones and they're all, you know, picking up emails and talking to the studio. The studio contacted them and said, give us 10 minutes, we'll have a statement. So we went and did the panel. And then after the panel, they had a professional statement from the studio to release that said, we're very sorry for the situation. She signed a contract saying she could do these 10 days. We planned 250 people's schedules around that 10 days and everybody else's. She no longer can do it because she took another job and we have to replace her. So it was very clear very quickly that Rochelle Lefebvre had kept that part a secret that she took another job and it all calmed down. But the important thing there was that the studio had somebody listening to the reaction and saying, oh, this could get bad. Let's calm it down first. Um, so yeah, so having somebody there just really helped facilitate that level of calm. Um, and then the Borders book release, that middle picture, uh, that was a fan-run event in Borders, but across the street was an official um, Stephanie Meyer interview with MTV, and they did uh, a Q&A, um, as well as music played, it was a really cool event. And then across the street was the fan sites running costume contests, trivia contests, and the important bit of that is that it was at that event where the trailer premiered. So the first place in the world where the trailer was shown was at this event. Didn't cost the filmmakers anything, maybe, you know, some shipment to like send a stick drive to, to New York City or something. Um, but what it got was exclusivity for the people in that room. I've seen the trailer, they're talking about it, they're sharing it, they're posting it. And then the next day it was in all the normal outlets, but that exclusivity gave them this almost feeling of empowerment. And I've got something you don't have. And that spread like wildfire through the fandom. Whew, okay, I'm gonna take a quick pause. I've got a few questions here, we'll take a look. Uh, does the Tolkien State have to go over and approve every kind of work produced, even fan work? Could they ban fan work? It depends what you're using it for. The short answer is yes. Um, if you are selling it and it has direct quotes or it has imagery from Alan Lee or something like that, yeah, they could tell you to cease and desist. Um, generally, that doesn't happen. They, they like fans and they want fans to create things. Um, if you're doing something to sell or to uh, put out in the public domain, like a film or a game, you know, something that is a product that will be purchased. Yeah, um, that's that's the the right of creative control. Uh, they're probably not going to go down um, DeviantArt or anything like that and pull stuff off. But fair question. Okay, so 
Oh, it did it again. That's what happens when I click in on something. When I change screens. So an example that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Uh, this is Peter Jackson. He's kind of the pioneer of being a fan and managing fans well in a digital age. Um, so he was paramount to that projecting fandom, being a fan yourself. Um, this is a direct quote from him. I'm a fan myself, so I really cared. It's that level of identification with the fan base that really worked. Um, and we had that with Twilight as well. Uh, Greg Meridian was the producer that purchased the rights to Twilight in 2004, um, which actually I was reminded today is Twilight's 15th anniversary. Um, who knew? October 5th? Is that the date today? Yep, October 5th, uh, 15 years ago is when Twilight came out. So he bought it in 2004 and was really pushing it out to everybody. Oh my God, I love this book. I'm just such a fan. And to hear that from a, I don't know what he was, late 30s, early 40s guy, you're kind of like, really? But he was aiming to identify and he really might have been the biggest fan ever because he was very sincere. So Peter Jackson, very much the same thing. And we have all these stories of Alan Lee carrying the text around and talking about Tolkien. Um, a lot of them knowing the backstories of their characters and details from the appendices. If you watch the um, director's commentary and the, the actor's commentary on the extended editions, there's so much proof really that these guys are fans. They did their homework, they know their stuff. In actuality, it might just be that they have one fact that they happen to get on camera. Um, it might be that somebody whispered something in their ear and said, did you know this? But it's those little things when projected are really assuring, reassuring to the fan base. Um, so Peter Jackson was very good at this. What was interesting about these though, was these films were made 1997 to 1999. Uh, they came out 2001 to 2003. Twitter didn't exist until 2006. The iPhone was 2006. Facebook was 2004, I believe. So all of this happened pre the media that we know now, but he still managed to capture the fans using the digital space and then growing with them. So the one place that most fans did have was the OneRing.net. The OneRing.net had crashed the set in New Zealand multiple times and were escorted off by security. Um, and at one point, Peter Jackson was like, let's have a chat with these guys. They're very similar to us, you know, they're just fans. So they did, they invited them over for lunch and they had a nice chat with the guys that run OneRing.net. One of them ended up getting hired as a PA, as a production assistant. Um, they were all involved in a short, I think it's on the Return of the King extended edition special features, a short that Sean Astin um, directed on their off days and the OneRing.net guys were involved in that. They were invited to um, the premieres in Wellington and they were invited to the after parties for the Oscars um, in 2003 when, when Lord of the Rings, when Return of the King swept everything. So it started with, I'm a fan of Crashing Set to get information, to welcoming them into the fold, to giving them exclusive content and giving them trust so they trust you. The important line there was that if Peter Jackson said, oh, the film's going great, you guys are gonna love it. Well, of course he's gonna say that, he's the director. It's his job to have confidence in the text and in the film. Um, if a fan that you have known from the OneRing.net for a long time visits set and is welcomed with open arms by the director and says, oh my God, guys, it's absolutely amazing. It's so welcoming, it's so great. You're gonna believe that guy way more than you're gonna believe Peter Jackson. 
So it's just getting into that circle of trust, incorporating them where you can, projecting the fandom and meaning it, or at least looking to mean it, um, and working with those people. So that's that's pretty much what they did with Twilight as well, was uh, working with them, bringing them closer to the process. I won't go through all these, um, but just using the digital media is really important. But Facebook and Twitter, I think, were really good with Twilight. Facebook, there's a group, the Twilight Saga um, fan page, uh, was run by two girls um, and they were contacted directly by the studio that said, hey, do you want to work with us? So the studio went to the already large, to the already existing largest Twilight fan site on Facebook and said, do you want to work with us instead of creating their own from scratch? Um, and I'm sure you guys have seen this. If you go to one created by the studio, they're always really corporate. It doesn't seem to have much of a soul. Whereas the pre-existing ones where fans naturally gather is where stuff happens. That's where there's a lot of conversation and a lot of communication. So they approached the two girls that ran this group and said, do you want to work with us? These girls were like 14 years old. I'm like, heck yeah, you mean I get to meet Robert Pattinson? I get to meet Taylor Lautner? They were beside themselves. Um, now they're in their 20s and one I think works for Lionsgate and I think the other one's working for Kate Spade, so they're, they're doing okay. Um, but they were invited to all of the major events. They had exclusive content. Um, every day, the studio would release one item to them, and they could decide whether to share it or not. If you're a fan of anything and you have exclusive content, what's the likelihood that you're not going to share that, right? So if you have something, you want to share it with the rest of the fan because you know it's going to get exciting and people are going to comment and like and all that stuff. So every day, they would post something. Um, it also became a way to kind of counter that fan backlash that can happen really quickly online. So you'll see two examples here from Melissa Rosenberg, who was the scriptwriter for all five Twilight films. I had to count on that. Yeah, it was five. They took Breaking Dawn and took it into two. Um, she wrote for uh, Jessica Jones, Dexter, all sorts of great things. So there was a rumor going around in the fandom that the birth scene in Breaking Dawn was going to be clean and tidy. And in the book, it's really not. So people were getting really mad about this. Oh, I can't believe they're going to do it. I can't believe they're going to you know, tidy this up. So she gets on Facebook and says, guys, I don't know where you've heard this, but don't worry. It's going to be gross. It's going to be bloody. So that could have turned into a major issue. Excuse me. But she just stepped in and said, don't worry about it. It's going to be gross. So it gave them a way to interact with the fan base. Um, it was also there that, well, I can't his name. Chris Weitz, uh, the director of Golden Compass. Um, oh, I feel like I skipped those slides. I'm going to go back to that. Um, the director of Golden Compass um, was uh, hired to direct New Moon. And there's huge fan backlash because they're like, you screwed up Golden Compass. We don't want you anywhere near our books. And he wrote the fan base a letter saying, I apologize. Um, here's what happened. I won't do that to you. I care about this story. And he posted it there. It was released to the fan sites and to Facebook. So there's this direct reach from the director, from the creator to the fans saying, don't worry, I'll take care of your precious cargo. And that went a really long way in securing the fans' um, loyalty to them. Twitter was also an interesting one. Um, Twitter was just kind of starting to hit its stride when Eclipse was coming out. Um, so David Slade was the director of Eclipse, and he was the first one that suggested um, the actors get Twitter accounts. And he didn't care what they, they posted. So 
you know, Kellen Lutz was posting his Starbucks order and all of a sudden that skyrocketed as like one of the best selling coffee orders at Starbucks, as you do. Uh, but he used it in a quite a creative way um, himself. He would post um, a picture of a tent pole and say, heartbreak begins in the morning, dot, dot, dot. And if you have read Twilight, you know, the tent scene is a really intense, pardon the pun, um, scene with emotions being shared and hearts being you know, poured over and things like that. So that maybe took him five seconds and cost nothing, but the fandom went nuts. Um, Twilight was trending. People were like, oh my God, I, I know what seems happening tomorrow. Can you believe it? It was just such an easy way to keep the fans engaged. So, sorry, I skipped a couple slides, but I wanna go back to these because this is some of the important stuff. So what happens when you incorporate fans in the process or you don't? So here's a couple of examples. Um, Aragon, Golden Compass, and Dark is Rising. I'm doing these three. Well, let's look at the top two. I'm doing these three because they have similar audiences, wide literature, fantasy, um, young protagonist, but the top two are much more similar. Um, the bottom one, Dark is Rising, if you've been in any of my classes, you know my obsession with Dark is Rising. It's the reason I live in Wales. It's the reason I've studied anything I've studied. So I had a personal stake in that adaptation. I uh, really didn't want them to screw it up. Don't worry, they did. They screwed it up real bad. Um, so that's my, my personal attachment to that one. Um, I'll go to that one in a second. Aragon and Golden Compass were very similar. Big budget, um, both in the late uh, 2000s, so 2007 and 2006, I think. Um, similar US box office intake, similar-ish budget, similar worldwide-ish um, intake. What was interesting to me for this, Aragon had a huge readership. Um, Struggle.com was the fan site for Aragon. And at one point, uh, Aragon was outselling Twilight 40 to one and had upwards of 4 million hits per week on Struggle.com, whereas Twilight Lexicon capped out at 2 million per week at its height. So like, we didn't hear as much about Aragon, but it had a massive fan base. Personal opinions aside, it's very good, but it had a massive fan base. Um, the author was Christopher Paolini, 14-year-old kid whose mom was his editor and dad was his agent or vice versa. It's all that money, you know, stayed with the family. Um, but the adaptation was not going very well. Um, it leaked that Aragon was cast as an early 20s guy and there was big fan backlash. So they ended up recasting Ed Spielers, who's there. Um, ended up recasting him. He was 17 when it filmed and Aragon was supposed to be about 15, so that was acceptable. Um, but there were loads of other things being leaked about what was taken from the text. These started going to the fandom, they started getting upset, and then the big one happened when they said um, Aragon didn't get this injury on his back at the end of the film that he's supposed to get, and it kind of defines the second book, and he doesn't get it. So the fans are like, what is going on? Um, ironically, I had a good chat with Whit Godfrey, who's a producer on Twilight, about this adaptation because he was brought on towards the end of Aragon to try to save it. Um, and there wasn't much you could do at that point. And basically he just said they spent all their money on CG effects of the dragon, making it look amazing for Christmas spectacular film. That was their main goal. So every time that dragon is on screen, it's millions and millions of dollars. And when you think about how that money could have been spent in story development, every time you see that dragon, it's taking away some story. So that was the payoff for them. Golden Compass 
this could be a whole other lecture, so I'll, I'll make it short. Um, Golden Compass was uh, written in, ooh, I don't even know, but it was adapted in 2007. Chris Weitz um, was the director and the um, scriptwriter. And he had a really good reputation for adaptation. He was Cambridge educated, English degree, um, did about a boy, just, you know, really stand up guy, was really pumped to do this. In the early days, Philip Pullman, the author, was involved. He um, sent along his recommendations for who could be Lyra, um, the lead character. The cast was incredible. Um, Cole Kidman, Kathy Bates, Ian McKellen, uh, Daniel Craig, Freddie Highmore. The list just keeps going. It was super, super shiny. <laughs> All of the CG effects, really, really shiny. Um, and you can see with the budget, 180 million. Um, this was 2007, they, they didn't skimp. Um, they really put the money into it. The issue came, I think it was about eight weeks before theatrical release. Um, there was a lot of kickback from the Catholic Church because this is an atheist-themed book, um, which isn't preachy, but it's written by an atheist who's a, a out and loud atheist. Um, the Catholic Church was pushing back that this was a Christmas release film, um, and New Line Cinema said, you have to cut all of the atheist elements. And again, it's not a preachy film, but they ended up having to cut, I think it was something like 23 minutes of the finished film. Uh, just, just massive, that is a huge chunk. Um, and it's, it's not like it's a preachy film, but the atheism is just kind of like the core, it's like the thread, like we were saying, the lens. It's what moves the story forward. It's just the spiritual core of the story. So you take those bits out and they wanted a happy ending. Spoiler, it does not have a happy ending. So they ended up giving it a happy ending so it would be a Christmas spectacular, happy film. Fans were not thrilled. <laughs> um, Chris White, after all of his contractual obligations were done, threw everybody under the bus and was like, I didn't want to make that decision. I didn't want to be involved. <clears throat> Philip Pullman had washed his hands of it ages before. So again, you can just see with both of these, didn't listen to fans, didn't incorporate author. Um, that's not to say you have to, you can absolutely make an adaptation without incorporating the author and make a beautiful piece of work. But if you have a massive fan base that's going to be pissed off, you have to realize you're making that decision and it's risky because you might lose a massive intake of box office return. So let's look at box office. Ignore budgets for a minute because so many factors go into budgets. You know, where are they filming? What are the permits? What's the, the um, fee for your, your talent? So just looking at box office, what really interested me was this worldwide versus US, because worldwide, 364 and 245 are fairly respectable. Like those are okay numbers. Um, 75 and 70, that's how much Twilight made in its opening weekend. So it definitely should have made more than that. Dark is Rising was just a mess. <laughs> MTV bought the rights. It was adapted in something like six weeks when the average shoot is eight to nine. Um, they took the lead character and he was supposed to be an 11 year old British boy and they made him a 14 year old American. It's supposed to have this core of wonderful Arthuriana based on Celtic mythology. It's just beautiful. They took all that out. There's no reference to King Arthur. Maybe a really passive one. They gave him a twin trapped in an alternate dimension. They gave him a love interest. It was terrible. Um, they also did not manage their PR very well at all. Um, they had an intern on set that was interviewing the actors during uh, the shoot, uh, and this was to air uh, like in between shows on MTV. So they were interviewing one of the lead guys, um, I think it was Christopher Eccleston, right? I'm going to blank on the name. Um, 
and he they said oh are you excited this is a series of books you, you could come back and film more and he goes oh there's more i might have to do this again talk about how to piss off your fans <laughs> he didn't even know there were more books let alone want to be working on this film so it didn't go down well um so anyway ignore the bottom one that's just my own personal bugbear take a look at the numbers one last time for this and we're going to scroll over and look at some positive results and here's the other side of the coin and this is just the first film of the series and just the first release because most of these have been re-released multiple times so as you know the last harry potter film came out you could go watch all eight films in a row if you wanted to so these are all films i'm not going to go through because i'm sure you've heard of all of them that all of their uh books were made into films um it didn't stop after the first one and massive massive intake and fairly low budgets twilight's budget did increase it doubled for the second one um but the i mean just for a small example the salaries of Kristen and rob went from 2 million to 12 million so there were some significant jumps that happened between the first and second films so yeah sorry i skipped those slides earlier but that's kind of the main payoff right so like how do you do this you incorporate your fans through all the things that we discussed um you make sure that you know who they are you talk to your fans with skill knowledge with openness um, it can make you more money and it can provide you a better reception um, definitely try to work with the author they are the god of that universe keep it positive make sure the fans know that you're friends that you're working with them keep them on side and in general just be respectful don't be a jerk have fun and acknowledge the love of the work that you're working on so whew. I feel like I went real fast through that, but I just wanted to make sure I got it all out for you. Um, if anybody does have more questions and wants to Google this more, there's all my all my stuff. But I'm gonna open up this question panel that's been staring at me um, and see what we can do. So thank you so much for um, sitting through all of that. It was at least somewhat um, interesting. Uh, let's see. Oh God, there's so many. If you guys have questions, pop them in. I'll happily chat. Um, let me pick out a few of these and then I'm also happy to turn this into a discussion, um, which I'd really like to do. So if so I have to scroll past all of the uh, guesses on page numbers. Um, so yeah, after this, if you want to unmute yourself and have a chat, I'd love that. Um, Brenton, Aragon could have been a brilliant film. Rich, teen-laden world. Film was disappointing despite some good actors. One of the few like Golden Compass film would have been so much richer. Really important point here. You're allowed to love them. Like they can stand alone and be good films. Um, I am always a fan of whoever's a fan of whatever they're a fan of, you know, like you shouldn't ever be ashamed of that, but you can also take it with a grain of salt and say, oh, I can see how the fans would be pissed about that. Um, so the diehards would not be thrilled with adaptation. Golden Compass, I remember watching and just thinking how beautiful it was, but I knew the book too well and there were giant chunks that were missing. So that always will cloud. Ironically, I now do this the other way. If I go to see a film that I know is an adaptation and it's not something I'm working on or researching, I watch the film first and then I read the book because I usually like the film and then I get the book, which is more information. So I like the book, but it doesn't taint the film. Whereas if you go the other way around, you're always going to be missing something. So I'm with you. Knowing that fandom can get you to places you love is reassuring. <laughs> Please don't laugh. I'm hoping for a Semerillion adaptation. I want to do it myself. At least be part of the script writing team. 100% dude, this is how we get into these things. You just start being 
loud and proud of what you do and contact the right people <laughs> and hope that you can be a part of it in some small way. How about the fans who love the original material so much that they won't go see the adaptation afraid it will be ruined? How do you hook them? Oof, good question, good question. Tough one. And I think, I think the only way you really have in is a lot of the stuff that I've outlined there. You have to create a level of trust. If the fans see you working with care, see you acknowledging them, maybe not the individual, but acknowledging someone like them. You know, when um, Susan Cooper was reaching out to her fans and saying, you know, I, I hope you go see the film and you enjoy it, but I really hope you buy the book. You know, so there's always this kind of give and take of, uh, I'm not thrilled with the adaptation, but may you go enjoy it. So there's also this like permission from the author to go try to enjoy it. There's definitely that filmmaker need to identify with the fan, to create that base level of trust and to show the fan that they're taking care of the work. Um, you know, if you've seen a trailer where it's just wrong and I don't wanna see that, I don't, I don't want any part of that. But even that, I sometimes have a bit of a, a bugbear about as well because I feel like even if you know you're not gonna like it you should go see it just so you can clearly argue against it right it's it's like the people that say they won't read Harry Potter because they're kids books I'm like well read it and if you don't like it then you can talk about it but it's hard to shoot something down if you've never tried it you know what I mean so it's it's tough to appeal to that core base but if you do the things that you can to bring the author in, to work with the fans, to promote the fan speak and, and the loyalty and the, the care that you have for that text, they're a lot more likely to give you a chance. Um, there's also really silly things you can do, like exclusive content, participatory activities. Um, that intern for Dark is Rising that I was talking about, that was a competition on MTV, and the winner of the competition became an intern. Obviously, it didn't help that adaptation being good, but, you know, fair play to trying and bringing a fan in and having that fan interview the actors and be a part of the process like that's cool just didn't end up well <laughs> that's all um let's see we got another one if we're being open to an adaptation is there any metric for assessing it on fidelity matrix Oof. or is it just not helpful to say this is faithful and faithful uh if you're if you're in my folklore class right now you you we've talked about this um there's some really difficult language around um, the adaptation world. Sorry, I'm gonna stop sharing that so I can get out of here. There's some difficult language around the adaptation world. Um, when you're talking about an adaptation, you often hear words like faithful, betrayal, um, these really laden words that you've done something wrong and abysmal and how dare you, right? Because the text is a sacred text to a lot of people. So when you change it, that's a betrayal. You're being unfaithful. So there's some really difficult language around the world of adaptation. Um, and there is a matrix. Uh, it's, it's not like a black and white matrix, but there's definitely levels of fidelity. So you can talk about a close adaptation. A close adaptation is like Shakespeare. Um, so even Baz Luhrmann's Shakespeare is a close adaptation because it's word for word William Shakespeare. Yes, it has a really massive uh, changes with modern setting and everything. Um, but you're using this, the text exactly as it is. You're telling the story exactly as it is. So that is a close adaptation. Um, then you have the, the more middle of the ground all the way to a loose adaptation. And these are the ones that you'll often see um, based on true events, inspired by a true story, you know, a little shred of 
truth in there that Disney would build a whole world around. Um, so you can have quite a wide range um, of fidelity. Is it helpful, not helpful? Depends, you know? I mean, I think of it personally, I think of it now more as a point of interest. Um, it wasn't very faithful to the book, but I really enjoyed XYZ, you know? So like, it's a part of the conversation. Oh, it's, it's quite the departure, however, you know, and trying to use words like departure and, and different medium, uh, different way to tell the story as opposed to it's a betrayal. I try to leave my pitchfork and, and torch at home, not start a fight, but it doesn't always work. <laughs> um, how do you respond to filmmakers, authors, showrunners who reject fan input, citing ownership of the text? Uh, the tension between creative purity and fan desires. Oh, that's a good one. And that's Lorena. Nice to see you. Um, that is a good one. Um, how do you respond to them? A lot of it is is that you do respond to them. If somebody, if fans bring their grievances to you, if they start a petition, if they're talking about boycott, if there's something going on and you don't listen, you're only going to get irate reactions. If you listen to them and don't change anything, you might get irate reactions. If you listen to them, tell them what might be different so they know what to expect, you're not as likely to get irate reactions. And if you listen to them, invite them on set, smooth them a little bit, you know, all these different things, then it gets a lot smoother. Obviously, this is a huge generalization. It can be, it can be different depending on, on whatever the uh, situation is. But there's also this conversation about creative purity. A director has the right to tell that story the way he or she wants to. So they shouldn't have to cater to the whims of the fandom. I'm just saying you have to be aware that you have this really powerful fandom. And if you don't pay attention to them, you're taking a really big risk in the box office. If you don't care about that and you're just an artist and you want to do what you want to do and the studio is okay with it, run with it. But if you have a popular adaptation, chances are you're not going to be allowed to make that decision on your own. There's going to be massive amounts of people um, that have a stake in that, studio runners, things like that, that care more about the money than they do about the creative output. Um, so there's going to be most likely a team of people there to help manage the fans and gauge their reaction, excuse me, um, and help you kind of communicate changes from text to film. So it's not so shocking or jarring to the fan. And they might even put out some precursor information of we changed this because dot, 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 dot. And they can rationalize it. So you might be really pissed when you read that article. Oh, they changed that. They took that character out. But by the time you go to see it in cinema, you've already seen it. It's not news. It's not going to be a shock. Whereas if you're sitting in the cinema and you see that they've changed it, that's when you have that black leather sofa moment where you're like, no, no, no. Right? So yeah, there's, there's not a clean line there, but there's a lot of things that you can kind of take into consideration. Some loose adaptations can be awesome. Oh my God, totally. Uh, like Clueless as an interpretation of sensibility. Uh, dislike it when adaptation misses something at the heart of the piece, like the Narnia. Yeah, um, sorry, there's more here. Like the Narnia adaptations, even if they sometimes make a good film on its own. Completely. I think Narnia is an excellent example. And of course, you brought that up, Brenton. Thank you. Um, adaptations, when they're not faithful, when they do depart, can be really beautiful. Um, 
two of the ones I love are Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile. Like those are very different from the text, but they're wonderful films. Um, and I actually had this conversation recently with my sister about the help. Um, I don't know if you've seen that film, Allison Janney, Emma Stone. Um, really lovely, fun film, really enjoyed it. But my sister read the book first and she was so disappointed because they were missing X, Y, and Z. Um, but I watched the film and I really enjoyed it. And then I read the book and I liked it as well. So it, it just, you know, whichever one you come to first. But there's no reason a loose adaptation can't be awesome because you're coming at it with this core of characters and backstory and foundation, and then you get to play with that world. It's like the best funded fan fiction when you get to create interpretation of something you already love. So if you want to be a loose adaptation of that and go crazy and do something like Clueless based on you know a, a classic text, what fun. I script edited on a uh, text and it was Emma, but with zombies. And it was before the Pride and Prejudice and Zombie stuff. It was like, High School Musical with zombies, but based off of Emma, it was great. So just really fun to play around with things like that in the same same kind of way and idea. Right. That's okay. I did wonder, I was like, ooh, was it Sense Sensibility? I thought it was Emma. It was Emma. Brenton just corrected himself. Um, I'm very happy to turn this into a conversation if, if folks are interested. I, I don't need to be front and center. So if you're interested in turning on your mic and your camera and want to join the party, I don't know if you have the ability to do that on webinar setting, but um, do let me know and would love to have a chat. But if you also want to head off now, that is totally fine with me. Thank you so much for, for joining in. We just made it under the hour. Um, oh, good. You can turn on mics. Great. So if you would like to turn on your mic and join in, please do. And I'm, I'm sticking around for a little bit. John, when a film series takes on a large fandom who have never read the source material, tell me who that might be. I think I might need an example. Um, do the filmmakers have more license to ignore the literary fandom? Oh, you're thinking of Harry Potter. Great. Here's, here's my thought on Harry Potter. The first two Harry Potter films are super, super loyal very, very faithful to the detriment of the film, I think. There are really close adaptations. There's not a lot of creative freedom. Um, they're very clean, they're very tidy, they're very Disney. I know they're not Disney, but they're very like, you know, shiny. Um, and to me, I think that was to satisfy the fan base. They were keeping everybody on side. They were keeping them happy and knowing what they were gonna expect. J.K. Rowling visited the set multiple times and showered her approval and that's exactly what I wanted it to look like and all this stuff. So they had everybody on side. Once the first two films had come out and they made bank, they knew they had a core audience of new, new people that hadn't read the text. They didn't have to be as faithful to the text because it already was this massive audience. So that's where we see Alfonso Cuaron come on and he gets super creative. You know, he plays around with the text and brings in different elements and skips around and gives them street clothes and, you know, all this all this other tonal stuff that comes into the film. So at that point, it didn't really matter um, if the core film audience had read the text because they already had the core audience. But would they have had that core audience if they started going off the rails in the first two films? I don't think so. I think they had to be faithful in order to secure the fan base and then they could get creative. Again, just my two cents. Oh, I have to, do I have to promote people to panelists? Ooh. There's not a quick way to do that. 
All right, how about this? If you would like me to turn on your mic, um, I would say raise your hand. Does that work? You can do that, can't you? And I'll turn your mic on. Um, the Harry Potter films get get better when they leave that Disneyfication approach. Um, but as the books get longer, the films can't be as precise. So they had to do it more creative ways, 100%. Um, controversial, but my favorite Harry Potter is the fifth one, Order of the Phoenix. Controversial because everybody's like, oh, he's so angry. I'm like, yeah, that's why I love that one. Um, but that's also the longest. So the massive amount of cutting they had to do in that. And that's where I'm saying Harry is the lens. So like Harry's the through line. So we lose spew. We lose... Um, I don't know, can't remember some of the other side plots now, but all these other things going on in the periphery. Um, oh, no worries. Thanks for thanks for coming along, folks. Uh, let's see. Oh, Brenton. Hey. Hi. I, I, I actually I'm ducking out soon, too, but I I, I just love this uh, conversation. It was like super cool what you did here um, in a way that I just couldn't be that cool. <laughs> But um, like I've you're been, that cool, Brenton. You're that cool. I'm cool in a more like beer growing kind of way. I think so. The I was thinking about this because one when uh, the Battle of the Five Armies came out, I did a blog post where I talked about how the living text of Tolkien is affected by the film. So like the text itself has grown because the films are now part of a larger text that we carry around with us whether we've read all of you know Tolkien's writings in the Middle Earth series and everything but nothing no films or you know more like we've got films in some books right and uh someone kind of told me that I was Im an Im immoral human being that really shouldn't exist in the world was basically the response and um and I've been kind of I've been kind of intrigued by this because I do carry around kind of like I want fidelity and then but I do love um, film for its its own sake and and I don't know that I have a lot of conclusions but I just want to thank you for helping me think through on the adaptation side the fan stuff is just far beyond anything I've ever knew and this is just and this is just scratching the surface I mean I really do think I could do a whole lecture on so many different parts of these and um, I'm glad you brought up uh, carrying the body of text along with you because something I only briefly touched on was like transmedia marketing. There's mm. so many different routes to come into a fandom and now everyone has to, like the creators have to be so aware of that, that, you know, when I was talking to the game designers of Lotro, I was like, you know, I know you weren't allowed to use the stuff from the film, but did you use the stuff from the film? And they were basically like, well, we don't mind if somebody infers that that character looks a bit like so-and-so, you know? So there was a, a bit of that kind of subconscious association going on that wasn't so subconscious. Um, but you have to be aware of that because sometimes a gamer is gonna come into the film adaptation and not know about the book. And how are you gonna tie all those pieces together? The yeah. issue we run into, just like you said, is there are some real irate fans. Fans can get super competitive, as I'm sure you guys know. Mm -hmm. um, any fandom you're a part of, you know, like, well, I know more trivia than you do. And I, you know, so if you try to overpower somebody's knowledge or tell them something about their fandom, because people are so personally attached to this stuff, especially with books, I think, because you have such a personal experience with it. You read it by yourself. You know, you have this real relationship with the text. And then somebody else is going to adapt it? No, you know. Yeah. So there's this real protection element that is hard. I I think I got very zen during my years of fan studies because I just let it roll off me. <laughs> just yeah. I don't want to engage with you. Just just roll off. 
Well, it is always intense uh, trying to talk about Tolkien in public. There's always like some people in the back mocking you in Quenyan or something, right? Like they're just so exacting. But I was thinking like is, I don't know if I can ask this question in, in, in quite the right way, but so someone made the comment that the, well, the Narnian films were terrible, but they're kind of so terrible that they could be redone anytime, right? Uh, the Lord of the Rings films, the, the first three, were sort of foundational for a generation of people, though many didn't like them. Um, the Harry Potter films were the same, right? They were they were great in their own genre. Is there a difference now that we have sort of the Netflixization, the serialization of film? So now TV is film. It doesn't matter how long the shows are. We create episodes based on the content rather than mm -hmm. sort of uh, ad space and things like that. Is that? Do you think that's going to change? Because um, uh, both Narnia and Lord of the Rings are being serialized in different uh, forms over the next two or three years. Reputed, uh, we'll see. Um, things are changing, but yeah, yeah, like is that a is that a fresh perspective? Is that a new way to run? Yeah, it, definitely. I mean, it's it's a, a massive opportunity first of all because you know one of the things I always say with with Harry Potter, like the reason we had to cut so much from the 600 page book to make an hour and a half long film, even though they're like two to two and a half hours, you know, you have to do that because otherwise you'd have a nine hour long film and you'd have to charge a hundred dollars ticket and people aren't going to do that. We don't live in that world now, like. You, you can do it via Netflix or Amazon Prime or something. And just like um, Game of Thrones did, you could have 10 one-hour episodes for one book. Heck yes, I would engage with that. The other thing that has changed, there's two things. One is with streaming services, they're now eligible for major awards. So there's no negative effect to taking something out of the world of cinema and putting it into the world of tv there is some there's still that kind of hollywood ideal of like well i work in film you know yeah. um and same with actors there's a lot of actors that wouldn't touch television because i work in film that has obviously changed you know people are pitching to, to netflix all the time to do their own creative wonderful thing and they could be olivier award winners and you know high fancy pants actors but there is there is not that there isn't that divide anymore between television and film. It's a lot more fluid. So 100%, I could absolutely see these worlds. And because they all turn into money makers, you know, I, I still think there's a core of good in most of these adaptations, but you know, the last Harry Potter film did not have to be two films. The last Breaking Dawn film most definitely did not have to be two films. So there's an element of money making in there. So if they could expand their reach, expand their audience, do something new to bring more people in, attach the marketing, attach the merchandise. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to play with in there. I'd love it if they did it with Narnia. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, Netflix paid a lot and it intends to relaunch its entire uh, child brand based on the a Narnia um, serial and a series of films. So they're not actually choosing just one genre. but. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know, like that was supposed to start next September, 2021. I, I, I can't imagine. And, uh, and they, they, they dump tens of millions into it. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and we just saw this with golden compass, BBC had the rights to golden, Com um, golden compass historic materials and adapted that. Um, and that quickly reverted back to the world of, of free adaptation and BBC took it up. So there was this like quiet optimism of like, Ooh, BBC is going to do it. And I knew they were filming in Cardiff. 
and I knew it was going to be at least six episodes because I knew a cameraman on it and <laughs> he had been booked for that. And I was like, it's going to be at least six hours, six one hour installments. That alone as a fan gave me some sense of security. You know what I mean? Because if yeah. you're taking a text like that and telling me 90 minutes, I'm like, well, then you're not going to get it all. But because yeah. it's BBC and then we started to hear the cast and it had its failings, but I think because of the pace and the talent behind it, Oh, it was, it was such a, a beautiful story, but also a, a more, I don't hate to say faithful, but it was a closer adaptation. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, I don't know what we're going to see. I think I sometimes wonder if the best adaptations are like Stranger Things, where they take the, the feeling of an entire w couple of worlds, like Dungeons and Dragons plus Stephen King or something. And, and that's it right they you know then they play within within kind of their own imaginative recreations of the world you know so mm -hmm. that's pretty pretty and with that too i mean they're also tapping into nostalgia and all sorts of stuff i mean there's there's feelings of oh, goonies yeah. throughout that i mean that that's yeah. that's more of like creative influence that's not necessarily adaptation that's creative influence but no, yeah um, um we've yeah. got another hand up here lorena hello Lorena, I'm not sure if you're chatting. We can't hear you yet. Okay, there you go. It just hey. unmuted. Um, I have a question about when the studios involve themselves in the fandom. So they are finding the influencers, but in a way they're defining the influencers. So they are, by their presence, changing the dynamics of the fandom. So I'm guessing I have kind of two questions. Are they intending to to specifically try to control the dynamics of the fandom or should they or or is that something just like a byproduct and then as you noted fandoms have very complex dynamics um you know they can turn on a on a split second from being very supportive to you know very uh -huh. controversial or very adversarial so how much does the studio need to or should take on trying to get involved or smooth over or you know right. however those, those dynamics it's two points but it's kind of all on the same subject um first of all i i'm going to use twilight um they didn't influence the hierarchy so much they did their research and found out who these people were so they contacted the right people they didn't miss anybody in the twilight fandom because at that point it was a fairly tight fandom there were only five or six major sites <clears throat> and they worked with all of them and invited them to all of them equally and even created like this little group that just had the same content same information and they worked together to run twycon they worked together to do this borders event and that's almost unheard of in fandoms to have that kind of close uh, working relationship. Twilight was also one of the first ones to have two fan management staff members on team. So their whole job was to just field questions from the fans and to mitigate any negative reactions or issues that might come up. And they wouldn't like, calm down, sweetheart. It was very much like, let me find out about that. You know, they took it really seriously and would investigate. Um, that also became a really beneficial relationship in the other direction as well. Um, the New Moon script had leaked online. It was only online for about 10 minutes before the fans had notified Summit Entertainment and Summit had told them to take it down. So it was only about 10 minutes that that script was out before it was taken down. And that was because the fans had reported it to Summit. So it gave them that kind of relationship. 
So that's definitely a benefit for the studios to have a relationship like that. Obviously, the box office return can be quite positive. You have free entertainment from a trusted source. The fans are going to listen to these people. That can be quite helpful. Um, in terms of influencing who the, the hierarchy of fans are, there wasn't much of that. Um, they all kind of had their own voice and their own experience, and they all also had some, somehow they had their own exclusive content as well. So they were all at these big events, but then you know the Facebook group would obviously have posts that weren't with everybody. Um, that day I was on set and had that picture of the Twilight Lexicon folks. That was just the Twilight Lexicon. A different day, Twilight Series Theories was on. A different day, Twilight Moms was on. So they all had their kind of exclusive day as well. That changed um, for the second and following films. It was harder to manage the fans. <laughs> there were a lot of them. It was closed sets. It was publicity days. So they would be invited. They would all be invited for one day um, to do publicity. Uh, whereas before it was like, yeah, you can come Tuesday afternoon. You know, so there was a lot less freedom as as the fandom got bigger. But I feel like I talked around that. Did I hit your questions? What else was in there? Um, no, you did absolutely. Um, I, I have a uh, general uneasiness. I can see it definitely from both sides as being positive that the studio definitely wins in the box office if they're listening to the fans. It's it's uh, frustrating when you know they don't listen to the fans. And from the fandom side, it's empowering to yeah. know that the studio is paying attention to you and more just respects you. But there is something about um, that, you know, who's influencing who more, I guess, is what I'm poking at just a little bit and trying to figure out, um, you know, do they, does the studio then take on a responsibility or take on um, influence in the fandom that they weren't intending or does the fandom lose a little bit of its objectivity because they're involved with the studio. So I'm just poking at that a little bit, trying to figure that out. Sure, and and it would depend on the fandom, obviously. Um, just, you know, just as you were talking, I'm thinking about the five or six that I've worked closely with, and they're all different, you know, and, and so much of that depends on the relationship they have with the studio and how much the studio wants to engage. And, you know, is that producer doing all of the films or was he only on the first one? And there's, there's so many different variables that, that can affect the relationship and the dynamics within that. But there is a certain amount of fan autonomy that I think has to be suspended during an adaptation. I think you get it before and after, but during, you're kind of taking the lead from the creators because you don't want to mess up the relationship. You want to be invited to the red carpet events and things like that. You don't want to muck that up. Um, but you also want to be on top of everything and really reactive, but supportive so you can stay in that fold. You know what I mean? So th there is this kind of middle ground during the adaptation process where you're being asked to do interviews and all these really cool, shiny, fancy pants things that give you that, that feeling of, wow, I'm very important as a, a member of a fan community. Um, but you don't have the same influence or autonomy or power within your own community. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does look that that might have hit it a little bit better because I'm thinking like if you have a staunch critic who um, not critic in, in the sense that they don't like it, but critic in the sense that they consider themselves 
objective and, and impartial. And if they don't like something, despite the fact that they have a relationship and are being trusted by the studio, they're still going to tell everyone you know, what they think. Um, and you're saying that in a way is suspended because if you want to keep that uh, yeah. connection and that access, you really can't come out as being uh, an adversary. Yeah, and, and it's pretty rare for that to happen after the adaptation. Usually a, such a positive relationship is forged. It happened with Captain America, it happened with Lord of the Rings, it happened with Twilight, that a positive relationship was forged during the adaptation, that there was no backlash after of, oh, I wish the filmmakers had done this. Well, I'm going to post this thing about them being jerk now. That never really happened because it just maintained as this positive relationship. But it, it does take trust to get to that point at the beginning. Um, and I think the benefit at the beginning is for the fans. So it's hard for a filmmaker to see the point in spending time, money, attention on that screaming, irate, you know, set crashing person trying to get a picture of the Batmobile or whatever. But if they replace that person crashing set trying to get a fuzzy picture of the Batmobile with inviting that person on set, having lunch with them and offering a picture that they will pose the way they want it to, then that gives them some sort of a creative control, but also gives that fan access and exclusive content. So like there's this give and take that needs to happen, but it so rarely happens. Even now it so rarely happens in the film industry. And this was, you know, filming in 2007, 2010, things like that. So like then it was, it was huge and brand new. And even still, it's not something that filmmakers naturally do. It is starting to shift a little bit, but not as much as you would think when you see the box office returns. Okay, that helps a lot. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks for the question. I was, I'm like, we could talk about that forever, Lorena. Um, Sue, let me unmute you. Oh, I think I just remuted you. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. I love. Um, yeah, not so much a question, it was an observation really um, about the involvement of um, studios with fans and remembering the. Uh, Harry Potter, and before, I mean, it would be after Warner Brothers had acquired the rights, but before the films came out, and they didn't seem to know how to cope with what was, I guess, a, a new experience of having this online world. And there were instances where they were sending legal letters to kids, telling them, you've got to take down your Harry Potter website. And they, I think, fairly quickly realized that, you know, trying to sue 12 year olds was not a good look and did a bit of a switch and U-turn and then you did start to get that, that fan involvement but that seemed to have been very much a, a pretty steep learning curve yeah. for them yeah. and they were just sort of panic oh, copyright copyright you know panic panic um yeah so it's it just an observation really that that's, that's the exact line I would have used learning curve you know it, it was just all so new so fast um, and a lot of the things that, you know, I've been talking about in this presentation, a lot of my research was this YA adaptation stuff, because basically after Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, um, you know, those were, they both started in 2001 and Lord of the Rings got all those Oscars in 2003. So all of a sudden the world knew there was an audience and in, for this fantasy stuff and they could make money with this fantasy stuff. And it was kind of critically accepted now. So this fantasy stuff was pretty great. So all of a sudden, all these studios went to their vaults and were like, what do we already own? 
that we can shove out real fast to try to capture this audience. Excuse me. So that's where we got this influx of fantasy and these really quick turnaround adaptations um, like The Dark is Rising that somehow fit into this little pigeonhole that they created, but they didn't know how to manage any other aspect of it. So backlash was not something they had thought about. An irate fan starting a boycott was not something they thought about. Um, there's a really famous example with, uh, I think it was Lucasfilm, um, with Amazon had started a fan fiction section. So you could post your fan fiction um, and they did a Star Wars themed one. And in the fine, fine, fine print, it said anything you write will become the property of Amazon. Like shady <laughs> to, yeah. to claim, claim that creative right um, from fans when they have places like fanfiction.net and stuff where they can share fanfiction for free in a better, more supportive, more creatively constructive community. That's rather than Amazon, which just didn't get it. They were just trying to capitalize too fast and didn't take stock of what was actually happening in that community. So like I said, with research about your fans, know who your fans are, but do your research of like how they talk and what would be acceptable and not. So there's a lot of like soft skills that we've been talking about a lot in the humanities. There's a lot of soft skills necessary in order to navigate this very business landscape of fan management. <laughs> so yeah, hopefully they learn a few more things, but no promises. The other thing that I was thinking of, again, regarding particularly Harry Potter and then The Dark is Rising and what went wrong with that adaptation, um, it seemed to be that there was a turning point. And really, I think with J.K. Rowling putting her foot down over wanting Brits to play the parts hmm. where the studio, I think, because there were sort of rumors that, you know, the kid who was in the sixth sense was going to be Harry Potter and, and yeah, J.K. Rowling, because she had the, the influence and the control, had kept that control, said, no, 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 this is, you know, this is British story, I, we want, you know, it's going to be British. And it worked. And it seemed to be so that they, didn't learn from that with the darkest rising where they went no no british kid no no can't be an english kid gotta have an american kid well and dark is rising they never thought had a fan base and it doesn't have the fan base of harry potter but it has a fan base like you could have done better if you had engaged with the fan base you had and then you pissed off the author who was like this is not my adaptation and jk rowling example you gave that's pretty new you know, back in Susan Cooper's day, she sold the rights to The Dark is Rising in the late 70s to her son, her stepson. Um, how it got from her stepson to Walden Entertainment, I don't know. Um, but it did get to Walden Entertainment. And I was quietly optimistic when I heard it was Walden because I was like, oh, they did Narnia. Those were OK. Um, I know Brenton will disagree with me on that, but I, they were OK. Um, but then MTV took over and you knew it wasn't going to be good. <laughs> So like that was, I don't know how that path happened, but that path happened. Now it is way more common to negotiate movie rights with your book deal. So you are negotiating them at the same time. And that's actually what happened with Twilight. She sold the rights to the first three films before the books were published as a package deal. Um, there wasn't going to be a fourth book at that point. And then as she was writing them, she realized there was gonna be a fourth, fourth book. So she renegotiated for Breaking Dawn made a whole lot more money, got a percentage of the back end, became an executive producer, you know, was part of the script development process, like officially, not just as a an act of, of fan management and goodwill, but like it was a renegotiation of a business contract and real smart. 
So now it is so much more common to have the author involved as an executive producer or an associate producer. So they actually have a stake in the claim, but also are seen as being part of the creative team. Yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah. That, that was it really. Um, well, anybody else, I'm going to wrap it up here because it's after midnight my time. I want to go sleep, but I'm very happy to chat for a few more if anybody wants. Um, I'm also quite happy to do these again because this is fun. I like geeking out about different adaptation stuff. But thank you for coming along. If you did, um, there's going to be another one of these. Brenton is doing um, an open class. Oh, Gabriel, you're going to have to check with me. I think it's next Monday. Um, we'll put the link up on oh, Tuesday. It's next Tuesday. Thank you. Um, and we'll put the link up on Twitter and uh, it's, it's on the Signal website as well. So come along again and we'll, uh, we'll listen to Brent and talk about his geekery, which is great. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, yeah, if you want to stick around and ask another question, I'm happy to stick around for another four minutes, but then I'm going to sleep. So thanks very much. Have a great night. Cheers. <laughs>